Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host and founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. The goal of the Talent Pool Podcast is to inform and educate on leading issues of the day in corporate governance, CEO succession, and talent strategy. My guest today is Ruby Chandy. Ruby is a board member of a number of well-known companies, including DuPont, Amatech, and FlowServe, all of which are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. She's an expert in corporate governance, and prior to her career in board service, Ruby served in a number of executive roles in companies like Paul Corporation, Dow Chemical, Roman Haas, and Thermo Fisher Scientific. So welcome, Ruby. Thank you, Alan. Let's dive into the talent pool. I particularly want to start off and talk about your perspective on the role of boards in human capital management, and particularly CEO succession. What have you seen in best practices through some of the executive transitions um, that have occurred? For example, I know Amatech not long ago went through a CEO transition process, some of the other companies as well. Um, talk a little bit about what you've seen as the board's role um, in CEO and C-level succession. Sure, Alan. Uh, yes, I would say over the course of my board service, I've probably uh, seen about four CEO transitions, and some of them have been candidates, external candidates, and some of them have been internal candidates. Um, so let me start off by saying, I think, and you know, I was lucky enough. Again, I'm lucky to be on wonderful companies uh, that work very well for my board service. So I would say, in in almost all cases. Um, you know, the reason that the board transition, the CEO transitions went quite well is because the board had done quite a bit of homework prior to the need for a CEO transition. And what I mean by that is it's quite important for the board at any time, really, whether there's a new CEO in place or someone who's been on the chair for a while, to really have in their hands a prioritized skills and experience matrix corresponding to the strategic needs of the company. So using the strategy process and using, you know, the other things that the board thinks about, uh, um, having all of that be distilled into where's the company trying to go over the next two, three, five, 10 years, what kind of needs will the company have? And therefore, what kind of skills and experience should the next CEO have? And distilling that, as I mentioned, into a, a one-page matrix. That is very important. A, you want to be uh, have that next search and the next and the next person in the chair really match the needs of the company. But also during the process of putting that together, it allows the board to have a lot of robust discussion and come to consensus. Because you may find that the first time you ask your board members to give you input to that matrix, that they might have very different views. So it forces a discussion around the company strategy. If, if that's where their different views are. Uh, and it forces a discussion around the skills and experience needed. You know, is it more important to have somebody entrepreneurial or more important to have somebody with a lot of operating experience or, or and so on? There are many, many questions that need to be thought through. So I would say that having that in hand, which many companies sometimes only create when they are in the throes of a CEO succession, having that in hand and looking at it once a year to make sure it still is up to date to the, you know, to the fact of the annual strategy process being updated, that's that's really important. And then, in addition to that, I would say um, 
you know, the, the annual talent management program is a key feeder into that CEO succession process. Because again, hopefully you're looking every year and maybe several times a year at a slate of candidates, primarily internal candidates. But, you know, the, the, the focus of that process is to tee up who the appropriate potential candidates could be and whether they would be ready right now or in a couple of years or in five or five years or even later. And again, having very in-depth discussions about these candidates, you know, what are their strengths? What are their development needs? What have they done against their development needs over the last year? Um, you know, what, what, how are they running their businesses? How are their uh, people leadership skills? How are their, their capabilities in the having impact across the company? So having those discussions is, is critical. Having discussions about whether either because of the time sequence, time horizon for some of these candidates to be ready, or because of other reasons, would it make sense to have external candidates as well in the pool? Now that may need to work until, wait, on actually sourcing external candidates would probably wait until you're fairly close to a process, but nevertheless, some networking might be possible if some of these external candidates are people in the board uh, members' um, Rolodexes. So, so again, those things can be can be done as a matter of course every year, whether the CEO transition is immediate or you know a way a way out. Um, nowadays, I think a, a trend. I mean, not not that new a trend, but a definite trend now is for board members to sometimes be involved in the development of candidates for potential candidates for a CEO chair, becoming mentors. You know, so sometimes those candidates are assigned to individuals on the board um, and the matching may be because of common backgrounds or, or a strength in a board member that's a development need in the, in the can potential candidate. Uh, but that's done more and more and those mentors might meet on a fairly regular basis right. uh, with the candidates and, and help the candidates really absorb feedback and, and work the feedback. Um, I think those are some of the key things, best practices that are happening. I would say that, you know, it goes without saying, but should be said that the robust debate, as I mentioned before, needs to happen in executive session without the CEO and then also in regular session with the CEO. You know, sometimes board members will, will just be more open and more, more clear about their concerns without this current CEO in the of room. Course. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really important to think about that. And, um, and, and by the way, when you're re reviewing potential uh, CEO candidates, again, you are often doing it not just with a view of immediate successors, but people who are in the pipeline two or three years from now or five to seven years from now. So, as you know, that also leads to talent development and talent management deeper into the organization through the first, let's say, three layers of the organization. Uh, that are, you know, down below the CEO. So it's it's really a good robust process, process to have. I was going to ask you that question about how far down do you see the board, you know, tracking that, you know, two to three levels, you know, for the most part of most of the companies or the boards you've sat on? I would say at least two levels is is very, very common. So for example, in some industrial companies or some companies in general, that might then be the C-suite and the group, the record group heads. To the right. um, and then, as I said, if you go a third layer down, it might be the division heads. That's that's sort of one definitional way to look at it. Um, now, there are companies, I think particular smaller companies that might go even deeper. 
But I think for larger companies, if you're able to go into those three levels in, in pretty good detail, depth and discussion, that, that's that's pretty good. And by the way, remember, often these are global companies. So that's you're, right. That's right. you're doing this on a regional level and a functional level and a P&L level. So it, it's a pretty rigorous and time-consuming process because, of course, it has to be done in the company first, right? Right, right. Uh, it, it comes up, bottoms up through the company and then gets to the board. Um, so there's a lot of work involved, but very important work if done well. As you said, it can't be a check the box no, no, no. kind of exercise. Well, you you know spent a, a fairly short period of time uh, at the Roman Haas organization, which you know I, I have a lot of um, history on their excellent talent development program that they had through that organization. You know, multiple levels, you know, very robust, very well run. So I've kind of seen you know, what a Cadillac program looks like. And a lot of things you're talking about really resonated with me from, from Roman Haas. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, you were talking about the international piece of it. As a woman of Indian descent, you're obviously paying attention consciously, unconsciously to the, the global nature, the international piece of talent development. Are you seeing companies being very willing or more willing today, not counting COVID travel restrictions, mm -hmm. to really look more globally across our organization? Or if it's a US-based multinational, do you still see them defaulting to a US-based candidate and maybe missing out on some of that international experience? Because I know that's a, a huge part of your yeah. companies you've been involved with have been very global. Yes. Um... They have been very global, and I would have to say that ahead of all the other trends we talked about, gender or race or ethnicity, I, at least in the companies I was in, and maybe, again, as I said, I was lucky enough to be in best practice companies, I would say the focus on geographical uh, expertise coming to the, to the U.S. and vice versa and also being involved in the senior level started 10 or 15 years ago. And probably in companies like Roman Haas, even before that. But uh, most of the companies I was involved with, you know, they were so focused on growing share and revenues in Asia and in Europe, but particularly in Asia, because you know China was opening up, India sure. was opening up, that uh, there, there was really uh, both a talent import and a talent export around the world at that time. So I have almost always worked in organizations where there were, you know, one to five. <laughs> members of the, let's say the top two layers, you know, who were, who were, you know, European or Asian or, or whatever, uh, South American, you know, so, um, and for me personally, as you said, I don't know if it's because of my heritage and having grown up in Africa and being of Indian heritage, but I love doing business internationally. I just, I just really enjoy it and, uh, love interacting with a different, uh, cultures and the different ways of doing business and the different making friends really I, i'm very happy that i'm still in touch with folks that i met in japan you know 30 years ago i've been lucky enough to experience that and have certainly made it happen in my businesses um, now i'm sure as you said there are companies that are more behind on that and if you if companies are that way you're just losing such an important part sure. of because we always say the importance of diversity, besides bringing in diverse points of view, is representing your customers. Right. You know, representing your suppliers and customers. And if you're trying to grow overseas, uh, and you don't have people representing those cultures and geographies, 
in your management team or on your board, or at least participating in a regular way, you know, to get their input into those uh, groups, then you're you're going to lose a lot in terms of understanding how to compete. What what do we need to do? How do we find up and coming talented in the middle of the organization? You know, diverse populations who may come to work, do a good job every day, but they're not part of the old boys network. I'm saying that intentionally, or they may be viewed as not having the potential or they don't have the right networks or they're not, they're just not being looked at. They're just overlooked for the perfectly good or very good job they're doing. How do we create programs? How do we start to identify and lift those people up so they can go from middle management to upper middle management to eventually to senior management? Do you have any thoughts on how companies can tackle that? Because I think over time, that's what's going to help the C-suite, particularly in the next three, five, seven years, while we're priming the pump more on the bottom, you know, to bring more diverse populations into those companies. Yeah, Alan, I, I do have some thoughts on that, but I actually want to make a comment addressing our last question. I realized that I spoke very positively about, you know, the representation of of different cultural, different international groups. I was referring to the executive management of the companies I worked at. When you then uh, mentioned boards, I would have to say that I think boards are somewhat behind in that. Uh, you know, while I, you know, I don't, we don't see a lot of international representation. Now, some of that is just logistical, right? Between the need to, you know, be in present in person now that the pandemic is uh, opening, you know, is receding. Uh, it's much harder when you have to uh, make calendars match, you know, across time zones and all of that. Uh, and of course, it takes longer to get to the U.S. if you're in Asia, you know, are you going to make that commitment and vice versa to have U.S. people on Asian boards? So there are definite logistical complexities to it, but I would say boards are somewhat behind because, again, if you just look at the, the data, you know that while, you know, gender diversity has gone up at least into the 2020s percent range. Pushing 30% finally, but pushing, yeah. yeah, very close to 30% after a long time. That that is not as true either for race and ethnicity or for cultural representation. So I just wanted to make that point because I was waxing so positive, but it was more for the multinational companies, including the boards, the companies whose boards I'm on, their executive managements are very international. You know, it's funny just to your board meeting point, um, we have a domestic client um, It doesn't have any international business that we're doing a board project for right now. The board meets five or six times a year, kind of day and a half meeting. And they said, we'll probably never go back to all in person. We'll probably be hybrid. So, you know, whether it's a board that's meeting every week, you know, because of crisis mode or once a quarter, I do think that, you know, Zoom and Teams and other platforms have changed some of that which could theoretically necessitate and create the opportunity to bring more international experience into some boards. Yes, so. yes, if that were if that were to stay, yes, I agree with you. That would be one of the positives of our COVID experience. But to go back to your, your other question about how can we help bring in and lift up more diverse uh, employees into management ranks and, and so on, um, I would say that, you know, the good news, again, as I mentioned earlier, is boards are really focused on diversity of management now, and not just in senior ranks, but how is the feeder system working uh, and bringing people in and moving them through the middle ranks, because sometimes the obstacles are very early in the career. Um, so let's start with how are they bringing people in? Uh, I'm sure you are the expert on this, but, you know, companies uh, now in our boardrooms, they're talking a lot about how 
They're developing broader slates. For example, they're requiring uh, nowadays that the slates have certainly female candidates on them, and and uh, and uh, you know they would prefer also uh, ethnic representation or or race representation. They're, so because of that, you know, companies are and their recruiters are going to a broader range of schools, going maybe more purposefully and intentionally to the um, to to you know schools that just have good records uh, of students in uh, with female representation and or um, race representation. Their companies are having to be sell themselves more. They're holding more recruiting events, whether it's at schools or or you know in industries. They're partnering with organizations. For example, I know that some of the companies I'm on the boards of partner with the Society of Women Engineers. Yep. Engineering is one of the fields in which it's really hard to A, bring in enough women and then to next to have them move through the positively through the organization. So there are many, many uh, affiliations, uh, group affiliations that you can work with. And then to your point, whether it's a board or executive management, I think they are doing more robust reviews you know, talent management reviews uh, and talking more about the kind of development that needs to happen. So we've talked about Roman Haas a lot, but, you know, the fact that th those development reviews were not just go get some training. They were about, you know, such and such needs experience in this geographical place, or they need to do a completely different assignment, maybe bring it, you know, work on M&A for a while. So I'm talking about those kinds of things because those may have been paths that previously diverse folks wouldn't have a ready route to. But now if that robust, if that development discussion is robust enough, they should be part of the group that you're, you're really having a big discussion of, hey, they have a good, you know, record, but they've only done this kind of work. How do we get them to broaden? How do we get them PL experience? How do we get them international experience? Um, I also think, you know, I've, I've seen this both through academic research and also through discussions about companies and boards, that companies are looking harder at systemic issues, you know, because, because that gets in the, can get in the way of inclusivity. Okay, you've brought in these great candidates. Why do they leave early in the career? Um, so, as I said, sometimes it's because they don't see the opportunities that, that maybe their uh, white peers are seeing or their male peers are seeing. So looking harder at systemic issues, you know, how do our processes work? I just mentioned the development process, you know, how do our hiring processes work? How do our mentoring processes work? How do our sponsorship processes work? So looking hard at everything from, from process to unconscious bias, which a lot of companies are doing oh, yeah, training absolutely. on. Um, and, and that unconscious bias training or, or those types of training are important, not just for those people that are managers, but also for individual uh, contributors, because I, I was just listening to a McKinsey webinar earlier where they said that people are as affected by their peers and their teammates as they are by their leadership. So if they're feeling not included or, you know, just having the stress of everyday feeling you're not part of the team or you're somewhat marginal to the team. I tell you, that's hard when you're facing that every day, every day at work. So I think companies are getting more aware of these things and just being more aware, they can now start to dissect them better. Um, so reten and they're also thinking harder about retention mechanisms, whether those are discrete, you know, compensation mechanisms or 
or you know assigning mentors and sponsors and and uh, setting up affiliation groups you know all my boards have employee affiliation groups you know women's network i still remember when i went to roman huss or the women's network i hadn't seen that kind of affiliation group before my companies in boston and they welcomed me and and you know there was such a big help for someone who was coming to a new city yeah in terms absolutely. of settling in and all of that as well as being you know there for mentoring discussions and so on um, so most, com- I shouldn't say most companies, companies I'm aware of have African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, you know, types of affiliation groups. And if companies don't have them, now's a good time to start thinking about them. I mean, private equity firms, some of them have them now as well. So I do think companies are thinking harder about it and how to retain, how to bring in and most importantly, retain. Right. You know, the groups they're trying so hard to attract. (laughs) Yeah, I think the retention piece, you know, between, you know, post-COVID, high demand, uh, I think companies are going to really struggle on the retention front, you know, with all of their talented people, but particularly from diverse populations. Um, So I have one last question uh, before we go. Um, When you think about the CEO and C-suite succession dynamics from the board's perspective, do you feel that there's the best place for that kind of project to be reporting into? You know, is it the comp committee or comp and human capital committee, depending on what's called? Is it the corporate governance committee? Is it a special executive committee? Is it the full board? What you know, how have you seen that sort of be best managed in terms of making sure that it's getting proper board focus um, within the companies you're involved with? Uh, I would say that co- many companies do different things, so there's probably not a single right answer. But my my experience and what I've seen in the literature has been that most often it might be, as you said, either the compensation committee or sometimes now the names are changing to the compensation and human capital committee That's or right. various names. Usually it is that committee. Um Occasionally, again, in my experience, others may have seen it more, is that it could be the nominating and governance committee. But I would say at least once a year, it it needs to come to the full board. Sure. So there's usually one of the four or five meetings annually that is focused on people, human capital, and that's when the deep dive discussions can happen at the board level. Now, if you are nearing a CEO transition or uh, some other strategic milestone, it may these uh, items make the, the people issues may come to the board more frequently, you know, not just once a year. But let's say you're in steady state, best practice would be to come to the full board once a year, but be discussed in the in the committee, probably the compensation and human capital committee more often. Got it. That's what I thought. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but Ruby Chandy, I want to thank you so much for these awesome comments and the thoughts that you shared today. It's been really delightful to be here with you. Thank you, Alan. Hey, it's been a great discussion. Thank you for for allowing me to contribute. You've been listening to the Talent Pool podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host and founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to learn more about our firm or these podcasts, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for listening.